Hello, and welcome back to the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. My name is Zaid Wahab, and today we will discuss the reign of Al-Walid's successor, Suleiman, despite barely having any material on the man in our sources. There is so little that before you know it, we'll have shot through his unimpressive reign right on to his fraught succession. All this in episode 30, Suleiman bin Abdul Malik. We've already discussed some of Suleiman bin Abdul Malik's first moves as caliph last time in the context of his own succession. Since the influential Al-Hajjaj had promised to help the previous caliph deny Suleiman his position as next in line, he started by removing everyone who had come to power through that recently deceased governor. He had them replaced with his own supporters, who in the east just happened to be Al-Hajjaj's nemesis, the Muhallabs. The caliph's bias was especially detrimental to the ummah, because his own loyalists were overwhelmingly from one side of the tribal conflict. At least so I said, and I remind you once more that there are narrations which don't mention any of the themes that we have focused on. I admit that there isn't enough evidence to be certain of very much, but the problem is that if we discount this material, we end up with vanishingly little about the man. Al-Tabari has barely 10,000 words on Sulaiman, Al-Mas'udi just 8 pages, and Al-Yaqubi less than 4. But let us soldier on with the usual, an intro of his life before becoming caliph. It was very similar to his brother Walid's, who was only older by a year or two. By the time Sulaiman was ten years old, the Umayyads had gone from uncontested leaders of the Ummah under Muawiyah to a plucky longshot in the second fitna. We don't hear anything about the young Sulaiman during this tumultuous time, but after it was over, Abdul Malik appointed him governor of Palestine a position he himself had held during his father Marwan's short reign. Suleiman built strong ties to the Qahtani tribes who had proven so instrumental at championing his clan back to power. The administrative center of Palestine when he started was the city of Lid, and he governed from there for a few years before building a palace in nearby Ramla, after which that area slowly became the new provincial capital. I was surprised to learn that he stayed in Ramla after succeeding his brother, effectively making it the caliphate's capital. We don't really know much about what else he got up to. Our sources try to make up for this lack of information by giving us some personal descriptions of the man. They agree that unlike his brother Walid, he was eloquent and personable. He liked the finer things in life, probably a little too much, and Al-Mas'udi goes on about how everyone around the caliph had to wear fancy clothes, servants and chefs included. Chefs are mentioned quite a few times because apparently Suleiman was a huge eater, like a real glutton. We are told that the caliph's beautifully embroidered sleeves were always greasy because he would use them to protect his hands while digging into hot food fresh from the roasting pit. I'm not kidding, there are multiple narrations about how much he ate, even one where a guy is given a robe with greasy sleeves and guesses it must have been the caliph's, so do with that what you will. Overall, the guy comes out like an affable slob, as if Homer Simpson was put in charge of the caliphate. 
Now, Al-Tabari doesn't get into these important details very much, though. He focuses on the military conquests which took place during Suleiman's reign instead, part of why he has so little to say. We could barely keep up during Walid's reign, but we won't face that problem with his brother. Let's start with the West. The conquerors of Morocco and Spain, Musa and Tariq, had been recalled to Damascus during Al-Walid's time in charge, but they only arrived as the caliph lay dying. Suleiman didn't keep them waiting very long. He swiftly dispossessed them of their wealth before replacing them with his own loyalists. The only achievement we hear attributed to these new Syrian overlords of the West was their poisoning of Musa's son in Spain a year or so later. Sometimes I feel bad about providing listeners with so little detail about important parts of the Caliphate, like Spain, North Africa, and even Egypt. This may leave some with the wrong impression that these places didn't matter as much when they really did and would remain bastions of power for many centuries to come. They get short-changed in this podcast because they don't come up so often in the oral narrations our sources used to write their own histories. For those to come about, you needed more than just some conquering armies. You need Arabs living on the land, disagreeing with one another, and then passing on their multiple versions of the past to their descendants. I would rather keep the focus on the worlds they constructed, only supplementing it with material from other sources when I feel like doing so would help explain what the oral narrations are getting at. So unfortunately, Spain and the West will remain peripheral to our story. But please, accept this common bit of trivia as recompense. The Rock of Gibraltar actually got its name from the Arabic Jabal Tariq, which just means Tariq's mountain, Tariq being Musa's Berber loyalist, who first invaded Spain and defeated King Roderick in battle. It's a shame how much is lost in translation. The name Gibraltar sounds like gobbledygook to me, but I suppose it had to go through a number of languages to get so garbled. I guess the same thing happened to the word masjid on its way to becoming mosque. The Arabic original was Latinized as mesquite, and then went on to become the Spanish mesquita, and the French mosque, and finally the English mosque. There. Two bits of trivia should more than make up for skimping on half the caliphate's history, so let us get back to that other half. Things were only a little better in the east. The Muhallabs had valuable experience in the region, but Qutayba's prowess was apparently unmatchable, and frontier areas like Fergana and Transoxiana must have been abandoned because there is absolutely no mention of them until they had to be reconquered much later. Turns out you can't just replace the entire leadership and expect everything to just keep ticking along. Yazid ibn al-Muhallab did lead a massive campaign to conquer independent statelets in the mountainous regions along the south of the Caspian Sea. We are told he commanded 120,000 men with armies from Basra, Kufa, Wasit, Maru, and even Syria, leading them to the conquest of Dahistan, Jurjan, and Tabaristan, all in northern Iran today. In case anyone was looking for confirmation, that last region was indeed Al-Tabari's homeland. Despite the, relatively, despite the relatively humble size of the conquests, this still represented a significant achievement as the mountainous terrain had shielded its local populations from other would-be conquerors, even thwarting Sassanid armies on a few occasions. Yazid started with Dahistan in the west, then took Jurjan, and finally moved on to the easternmost Tabaristan. While laying siege to the city and besting its armies, he received word that the people of Georgian had rebelled and killed the man he had left in charge, so he doubled back and really conquered them. 
Suleiman's replacement of the commanders empowered by Al-Hajjaj may have gummed up his war machine in the east, but the new leadership only made matters worse. Unlike Khutayba, Yazid ibn al-Muhallab relied entirely on Arabs and became known for his cruelty towards the locals, especially Turks and Sogdians. He seems to have punished any budding communities or ties between the Arabs and locals, seeing them as having been a part of Qutayba's vision. Another reason he was so ruthless is because it probably endeared him to the Arabs, who it's clear had been dismayed by Qutayba's use of locals in his armies and must have felt relieved now that Yazid was putting them back on top of the food chain. Yazid also violated truces his predecessor had entered into with local governors, which led to further friction between the Arabs and the settled peoples of the East. If our sources are to be believed, the new governor had tens of thousands executed and took a comparable number of their wives and children as slaves. He destroyed their cities and decimated their wealth. We're told one city that used to pay a tribute of 100,000 pieces of silver a year was forced to shell out over half a million, and that's all besides the non-monetary wealth he stripped them of, like silks, gems, and other precious goods. We don't hear of any other conquests besides this exceptionally cruel and profitable destruction of these cities on the southern coast of the Caspian Sea. Probably due to the limited expansion east and west, Suleiman turned his attention to the Byzantine front. He ordered his half-brother Maslama to march on Constantinople and not return until it had been conquered. Maslama was the governor of the Caliphate's north, consisting of Armenia, Azerbaijan, Mesopotamia, and Khansarin. He was also one of the Umayyads with the firmest ties to the Adnani alliance, whose men made up the bulk of his armies. This campaign sort of became Suleiman's hobby horse, and some narrations even say that he rode out to see the armies off at the borders of Syria, and others that he went to fight alongside them. While I judge the first claim to be a maybe, and the second one to be a yeah right, I will note that he did appoint his sons as commanders of these Byzantine invasion forces, something he hadn't done with the other major campaign led by Ibn al-Muhallab in Khurasan. The caliph's personal involvement or identification with this campaign had both good and bad consequences. The good was that it honored its armies, the Adnani tribes that he risked alienating by his over-reliance on his Qahtani loyalists. This really balanced things out tribally in Syria and was the main reason why his bias didn't cause any issues until his reign was almost over. So that's the good. The bad was that it meant the militarily clueless Suleiman had unrealistic expectations of what could be accomplished, which he promptly foisted on his half-brother Maslama. Although Maslama was a fine general who knew his way around the battlefield, the whole venture was based on nothing more than a caliph's whim. Worse still, it almost seems to have been born out of the caliph's frustration at not matching the same level of expansion that his brother and father had achieved something he hoped to resolve by taking what the Arabs knew as the world's largest and most fortified city. Constantinople was no pushover, of course, and although it didn't take long for a Muslim to make it to the city's outskirts with large menacing armies, breaching its legendary walls was another matter entirely. The second Arab siege of the Byzantine capital started sometime in 716, and although we get two very different accounts about how it went, they both mention the theme of army provisions. In the glorious one, we're told that upon reaching the city, Masnama ordered his troops to throw away all the food they had brought with them because they were to live off the land from now on. 
They raided all summer long and subsisted off livestock and crops that they had grown during the winters. In the less glorious version, Maslama was tricked into losing all the food he had for his men, and his army had to battle starvation for a few seasons, as multiple relief forces were repulsed by the Byzantine navy. Either way, the Arabs seem to have had a trickier time surviving their second siege of Constantinople than the people they had hoped to conquer. An even more crucial aspect of this failed invasion goes completely unaddressed in our sources at this stage, just how financially ruinous it was for the Caliphate. The siege would go on for two years, and the Caliph sent out armies repeatedly in hopes of improving the Ummah's odds for victory, all at great expense to the treasury, not that anyone was paying attention at the time. Al-Hajjaj had been a dominant force in the Ummah's politics through the reign of two Caliphs for almost 30 years, so it shouldn't surprise us that there was a whole host of people who owed their positions to him. Qutayba ibn Muslim and Muhammad ibn Qasim were just the two high-profile ones responsible for all the conquests, and I'm skipping over all sorts of administrators like tax collectors, police chiefs, mid-supervisors, post officials, and others. His influence only grew during Al-Walid's reign, extending from the east into the peninsula. I mentioned last time how Al-Hajjaj had convinced the Caliph of the need for a stronger hand in Medina after some Iraqis had fled his domain for the holy city. Walid then replaced his own cousin, Omar bin Abdul Aziz as governor, appointing one of Al-Hajjaj's loyalists instead. Well, that guy didn't last too long into Suleiman's reign, and the new caliph undid Walid's changes after wrapping up the pilgrimage he led his first year in charge. Just like that, Omar bin Abdul Aziz was back governing Medina, and it's worth taking a minute or two to try and understand why the caliph returned him to his position. The caliph's cousin had a reputation for piety unlike any Arab notables we've heard about for a while now. His adherence to the Prophet's strictures deeply impressed those under his rule, and the people of Medina were one of the toughest crowds in the Ummah. For an Umayyad to inspire their loyalty through religious devotion was no small feat. It was this, pi- it was this piety which first got him the job, and he has been described as a, quote, Moses among the pharaohs of Umayyah, by some pretty anti-Umayyad accounts which in itself is proof that even the clan's worst detractors could not fault the man. Omar took no sides in any of the Ummah's many conflicts and focused on religious studies instead. This piety greatly impressed many Arabs, including the Qahtani advisors who surrounded the new caliph. If our sources are to be believed, Suleiman's most important advisor was an elder named Rajal Kindi, who had tutored Suleiman when he was younger. Raja, a devout man who greatly admired Omar's religious acumen, had become a sort of mentor to Suleiman, so it's reasonable to assume that he played a part in swaying the caliph towards Omar's appointment. But I've just been wasting your time with these ifs and maybes. I know why Suleiman did it for sure. See, his brother Walid had recalled Omar back to Damascus, and Omar duly obliged and lived with the caliph, attending his court and whatnot. When word got out that Walid was trying to replace Suleiman with his own son, however, Omar came out against the decision, saying that it would be a violation of Abdul Malik's will. Some sources say he wrote a letter to this effect, others that he declared it in court. Some say that Walid just took it on the chin, and others that he tried to have his cousin executed. He may have tried to seal him in a room until the oxygen ran out, like one large clay coffin, but then it took a while, and the caliph relented on the third day. There couldn't have been too much bad blood between the two, however, as we are later told that Omar led Walid's funeral prayers.
But anyway, to me it's obvious that this business with the succession was all Suleiman needed to know. And he may have even felt like he owed his cousin for having been the only one brave enough to stand up to his brother back then. Alright, I've stretched things as far as I know how. It is time to discuss Suleiman's death and succession. The theme of mortality actually comes up a suspiciously high number of times in narrations about casual conversation with the caliph, making it seem like death was often on his mind. Maybe that's misleading. He would be talking about life's pleasures, but then the conversation would turn to mortality and he would burst out into tears. It's less confusing than I make it sound when you read about it. It's straightforward that these narrations seek to portray Suleiman as someone who feared his own death out of a guilt at having lived too sensuously. He asked his interlocutors, who range from men of great piety like his cousin to women from his harem, what happens after death, and then he frets about the transience of life and the eternity of the afterlife. I admire the efficiency of narrations like these. With just a few words, they make the caliph out to be a hopeless addict of this world's many pleasures, who nonetheless believed wholeheartedly that he would be punished for failing to embody any of the religious virtues. We can appreciate what they're trying to do without buying into them completely, however, and I think we have good reason to doubt the purported sincerity of the caliph's beliefs. First off, all caliphs get this aura of religiosity superimposed on their legacy, so let's not be too quick to drink the Kool-Aid. Second, Suleiman's lifestyle was obviously problematically excessive, so while these narrations make him seem a little weak or hapless, they do away with any impression that he was unenlightened, shallow, or just a slovenly bum. I'm not saying he must have been one of those things, just that these narrations saying that he worried about his afterlife do a lot more good for Suleiman's reputation than it may seem at first glance. Finally, many of these religious tales involve the pious men who surrounded him, like Raja and Omar. Suleiman's original plan for succession was the same one his father and grandfather had pulled off while his brother had not, to pass the caliphate on to his son. The caliph seems to have wasted little time trying to set this up, despite the resistance he met from his brothers. There were four other sons of Abdul Malik still around, Marwan, Maslama, Yazid, and Hisham. Maslama was not a contender because his mother was a concubine, and ethnic purity was an unspoken yet unquestioned prerequisite for the role. Marwan seems to have been the one next in line because we get a story of a fight between him and Suleiman about this, during which Omar bin Abdul Aziz was present and tried to calm everyone down. It's a dramatic telling. Tempers flared and the caliph cursed at his brother, who replied that the words had lit a fire now burning him from within, then died of grief shortly afterwards. If this is true, it would have made Yazid the next son of Abdul Malik in line, but honestly he seems to have been a favorite of the clan since the beginning. He was much younger than Suleiman and Al-Walid, and his mother was from Muawiyah's family, so he sort of tied together the two classiest branches of the clan. I don't mean to make it sound silly, this stuff had real weight for the Arabs at the time, but obviously there must have been more about Yazid which made him the clan's preference. Anyway, Suleiman was totally willing to overlook Yazid, who he didn't really like, for the sake of his own son. But tragically, the young man died before his father, leaving Suleiman deeply depressed. Here again, we are told he gets counseled plenty of times on death and the afterlife. And I like the understatement he got from Omar bin Abdul Aziz that went, quote, If you hate mortality, prepare for hardship. 
We don't really get a lot of timing for these events, but Suleiman's reign would only go on for two and a half years, and he passed away in the summer of 717 of some disease. Whenever we are told about repeated deaths among the richer Arabs, I just assume a plague had broken out, like when Al-Walid and Al-Hajjaj died within a year of one another, and now with Suleiman and his son. There were plenty of those, and the Arabs were pretty bad about documenting them. In Al-Tabari, I just came across a single sentence during Al-Walid's reign that said, this was the year in which the massive plague destroyed everything, nestled between two unrelated headlines. Anyway, from narrations about him on his deathbed, it seems like he still had not chosen a replacement for his son, probably because he knew he would ultimately name Yazid, the presumptive favorite. He voiced some hesitation about naming the half-brother he never liked, and we're told that Raja immediately saw an opportunity and suggested the caliph name Omar bin Abdul Aziz instead. The caliph said he didn't think his family would be too pleased about it, and Raja quickly devised a plan and assured the caliph that he would have no problem getting everyone's pledge to support whomever Suleiman named in a sealed letter. And so it went. Suleiman wrote and sealed his will, then Raja asked the Umayyads to assemble and pledge to support whomever the caliph's letter had named. Yasid tried to protest, but after being shamed a little, he quickly fell back in line and pledged to the sealed letter like everyone else. They were all shocked to hear that Yazid was only named second, after their cousin Omar bin Abdul Aziz. Omar was surprised to hear it as well. He only found out when he was ambushed at the mosque with a royal carriage and entourage. He was told it would take him back to the palace, but he insisted on riding his mule instead, one of many little tidbits confessing to his religious character. He delivered the funeral rites for Suleiman as he had his brother, accepted pledges from everyone at the mosque afterwards, and became the Ummah's latest caliph. It might surprise you to hear that Suleiman is remembered overwhelmingly positively in our sources. Tellingly, the praise is pointed at, quote, his two mercies, that he dismissed all of Al-Hajjaj's men when he started his reign, and that he appointed the pious Omar bin Abdul Aziz to succeed him, despite his clan's preference for Yazid, who actually really liked Al-Hajjaj and was eager to return his base to power. We'll get to that later, though. Let's keep the focus on Suleiman, and the fact that he is praised for an act of revenge at the start of his reign, and an act of spite at its end. I think I've made it quite clear how unimpressed I am with Suleiman, and I think it's mighty nice of these sources to leave out everything he did in between his, quote, two mercies, like his ruthless dispossession of so many of the Ummah's commanders, the savage treatment inflicted upon the people of the East, and the expensive fiasco that was the invasion of Constantinople. None of that mattered. Instead, he is remembered as the one who saved the Ummah from Al-Hajjaj's injustice and then left it in the hands of the devout Omar. In a way, it's a testament to just how hated Al-Hajjaj and his governors had been. Their replacements, the Muhallabs, actually went on to become quite popular among the Arabs in the East, for all the wrong reasons though, like Yazid ibn al-Muhallab's brutality towards the locals. It is still a little ridiculous to me that Suleiman is credited with saving the Ummah from Al-Hajjaj when the governor had predeceased his reign, but whatever, good for him. The second mercy is sometimes credited to the Caliph's Qahtani friend and mentor, Rajal Kindi. While it is not 100% clear whether that is justified, it makes sense to assume that he, one of Suleiman's closest advisors, would have had a preference for Omar over Yazid. Now this could either have been because Omar was so religiously inclined, or because of Yazid's closeness to Al-Hajjaj's now-disgraced power base. 
Al-Hajjaj's readiness to support the previous caliph in his removal of Sulaiman from the line of succession was enough for the Qahtanis to regard his entire network of loyalists with suspicion. It was in this subtle and intricate manner that the tribal conflict first insinuated itself into deciding the Ummah's most crucial political decision. After his son had died, Suleiman really doesn't seem to have cared to whom he passed the leadership, and his Qahtani counselors helped steer him away from an Umayyad whom they saw as potentially hostile to their interests. Our sources do lean much more heavily towards the religious angle, but it's worth keeping in mind that there was a lot more going on behind the scenes than the caliph just picking the most religious Umayyad to succeed him all of a sudden. I'm low-key impressed that we managed to get so much out of the little we are told about Sulaiman in our sources. It literally took me longer to write this episode than to research it. His successor, sadly, isn't that much better. Maybe a little worse, even. There is slightly more material in terms of word count, but a lot of it is just stories about how pious Omar was. Wish me luck, and join me next time, here on The Caliphs, The Rise and Fall of Arab Power. <laughs>